Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death. Thank you for the display of your love that that is to us. Amen. Does God love you? Does God love you? Does God love me? How, how, how would you know if God loves you? For many of us, I think, I think what we're tempted to do is to look at the circumstances of our life, to look at what's happening around us. Are things going well? Am I being blessed, we say? I've got money in the bank, I've got food on the table, I've got the house over my road, I'm doing well in my exams, my kids are doing well. I've found the special somebody, I'm happy, I'm content, whatever it might be. If things are going well in our lives, we say, well, surely it must be because I'm blessed. Therefore, God must love me. Or conversely, perhaps, you're really not doing well at the moment. And you're full of doubts and despair. Life is hard. You you can't see your way forward. And in fact, because of that, you doubt God's love. He mustn't love me. Because surely if he did, my life would go well. Does God love you? In many ways, it's a very strange question to ask. If you think about the history of humanity, for most of our existence, what has been sought of the gods is to placate them. You've got to do sacrifices and offerings and and the right rituals and whatever to somehow try and get the gods on side with you. How do we even speak of God loving a human? The Creator loving one of His creatures. Does God Love me. Does he love you? Now we come to chapter 19. And in chapter 19 we come to the end. We come to the finish, to the completion of the section that began right back in chapter 13 and verse 1. This is the bit where it begins that inner kind of discourse with his disciples. And we read this in 13 verse 1. I mean this has gone back two months now but John says this of Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. Or perhaps better written, Jesus now loved them to the end. He loved them to the finish. He loved them to completion. And we'll see in our chapter that indeed Jesus says, it is finished. Now I'm really just going to read through the chapter again and make some comments as we go, so please make sure you've got John 19 open. There is an outline in your handout, take notes if that's going to be beneficial to you. And I've got five scenes that I've broken this up into. First one, Pilate versus Jesus, part two. We carry on. It's not the rematch because the last match kind of hasn't finished, but we continue on with these two heavyweights, Pilate and Jesus, facing off. Does God love you? John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out. He said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis 
for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here he is, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Does God love you? Pilate knew the truth about Jesus. You hear that refrain twice, he says it here. I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate knew the truth. Jesus was innocent. Now we know him from the Gospel of John to be perfectly man and perfectly God and perfectly innocent. And Pilate could see it. Does God love you? He loves you enough that the innocent would die in your place. And more than just the innocent, the one who claimed to be the Son of God. Did you notice Pilate's reaction when they tell him that? I wonder what he, what he thought of Jesus. I mean, he, he must have known about this guy who was walking around doing miracles and all the rest of it. He must have known that this person was somehow special, perhaps somehow connected to the gods. And here he is making his own claim to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this verse 8, he was even more afraid. He recognized the truth. The innocent must die. The son of God himself. Well, our second scene then, by whose authority did Jesus die? Verse 18, again, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to set you free or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. The one who handed you over, me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate said down at the bottom of verse 14, here is your king. And they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. By whose authority did Jesus die? Whose power was it that crucified the Lord of glory. Was it Pilate's? Well, Pilate thinks so. Please me. Come on. Don't just sit there being quiet. You better speak up, buddy. Tell me what I want to know. I have the power here. I can set you free. I can crucify you. You've got to get on good terms with me, Pilate says. <laughs> You've got no power, Pilate, Jesus says. The only power you have is what's been given you from above. And I love that little interchange in verse 11 and 12. 
Because what's the one thing that you think Pilate should be able to do very easily? He set this man free. He's the governor. All he has to do is let him go. Not that hard, right? He's got the power. He's got the authority. And yet verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He didn't even have authority to free him, let alone to crucify him. It was God's authority and God's power that saw Jesus die. It certainly wasn't the Jews. It wasn't their power by which they crucified. Oh, they put the pressure on. They turned the screws on Pilate that he would do it. And very sadly, their answer is, we have no king but Caesar. I feel for them, really. I pity them. They're so caught up in the moment. They're so caught up in their own desires, in their own sin, that yet again they turn their back on their own God for the sake of achieving what they want. Here is Israel, the people who are supposed to be the people of God, saying, we have no king but Caesar. Now, as an aside, friends, we must have integrity. We must have integrity. The moment that we give up on our God, on our Lord, on our Saviour, the moment that we pursue sin rather than the holiness that Jesus calls us to is the moment that our witness becomes useless. Because people look at us and go, oh, well, what sort of God's he following? He'll just throw in the towel at the first sign of difficulty. He'll throw in the towel at the first sign, the first time that he wants something else. It was not by the authority of the Jews. It was by the authority of God. And it's not as if God got caught out Never think that the cross, that the death of Jesus was God's plan B. It wasn't like it was, you know, time's passing and God's kind of going to Israel, that's all happening. Oh no, oops, they caught Jesus, they caught the Messiah. What can I do now? This was his plan all along. Now there's this refrain that pops up in verses to come. Verse 24 says, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 28, that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 36, that the scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 37, as another scripture says, this is God's plan going back thousands of years. In fact, all the way to the beginning. We read it in Zechariah chapter 12. That was what that reading was for. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 is what is quoted in, uh, in, in John 19. Right? I mean, I'll, I'll read it for you. Here's, here's the verse, Zechariah 12:10. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. Right? This is God speaking. They will look on me, and you're thinking, brilliant. The people are going to look on God, the one they have pierced. This was God's plan that He Himself. Perfect God, perfect man, perfectly innocent would come and die. Does God love you? He loves you enough that he would plan over thousands of years and carry out the execution of his own son. And so our third scene is this king who dies. Verse 17, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, 
and with him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and he fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Once again, Pilate gets it right. I don't know why he's doing this, if it's to poke fun at them or if he truly did have some sort of insight into Jesus. Here is the king of the Jews proclaims the sign. It's a little bit as if someone had got one of those big billboards on the M5 that kind of everyone sees and wrote in English, simplified Chinese and Spanish, right? Everyone, everyone sees it. Here is the king. Here is your Messiah, O Israel. Here is the ruler who was promised, promised to David, the one who would have an eternal reign, the one whose power and greatness and glory would surpass even Solomon's. Here is the king. Dead. What sort of power is that? Well, it's the power that would mean that because of God's love, God's king would exercise all of his power to die. Does God love you? Well, he loves you so much that his king would be crucified. And so Jesus says it is finished. Jump down to verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's finished. What a failure. Imagine the good that Jesus could have done. I take it he was immortal, right? Fully, fully God. He could have lived forever. He could have still been alive today. Jesus, the one who could heal any disease. Any disease. The one who could feed any number of people with just one loaf of Helga's or whatever kind of lame bread you have, right? With two little fish and the one who could have ended world starvation. The famine throughout all the parts of the world finished. The one who could have brought peace. The one who could have cast out demons and brought an end to darkness. Finished. If you said to me right now, David, the best thing that you could do for us right now is to drop dead. I wouldn't really take it as a compliment, right? I mean, I... I'd probably think, oh yeah, okay, going too long or something, right? That's... And yet somehow Jesus, in this moment, that was the best thing he could do. Not that it's not good enough, but that it is exactly enough. It is finished. Not finished as in, oh no, we kind of got to the end and it stopped, but finished as in complete. 
It is done. It is accomplished. If you want it in one word, it's the stamp that says paid. Not I am finished, but it is finished. He loved his own to the end. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Even that, even that language speaks. He gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from me. Even at that very last moment, I'm sure, one word would have sent angels by their thousands to rescue him. And yet he chose to die. Does God love you? Well, he loved you to the very end. To the completion. And Jesus was truly dead. Verse 31. It was the day of preparation. The next day was to be a special Sabbath. Now because the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Soldiers therefore came, broke the legs of the first man with Jesus, those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, found he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies that you also may believe. There are people today who say Jesus didn't really die or at least he wasn't crucified. The Muslims in Islam, they will say Jesus wasn't crucified. A a replacement, one of the other disciples volunteered and was given the image of Jesus and he was the one who was crucified and Jesus was taken off into heaven. You kind of have to make all kinds of crazy things up if you're going to say Jesus didn't die. Even some atheists today will say, well, he didn't really die, right? It was just kind of he passed out and then in the tomb he kind of, in the cool of it, revived and all the rest of it. Jesus died. He loved you to death. And there's that intriguing little imagery, the sudden flow of blood and water as the spear pierces his side. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, which is the last reading of that verse, goes like this. On that day, remember on the day of the piercing, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now, if you know your Bible, what is it that cleanses from sin? The Old Testament, you remember what cleanses you from sin? Blood, right. And what cleanses you from impurity? Water. You've got to wash yourself. I mean, he's dead, the blood and the water flows, and yet with it brings this fountain that cleanses from impurity. And from sin. Does God love you? He loved you to death. His death. Now you may have gotten the feeling by now that this isn't a go and do kind of a sermon. I'm not about to give you the three spiritual exercises to do this week or the five things you must do or whatever. This isn't a go and do sermon. This is a, this is a no sermon. Not, not N-O, no, but K-N-O-W, right? No, no, understand, accept, have in you. Know that you are loved deeply, profoundly, 
It doesn't matter what's happening in your life right now. You, you might be, gee, life's good right now. You're the happiest you've ever been, right? You're living in a great place. You're at a great school, uni, work. Your money's coming in. You've found the special someone. Friends are good times. Your car is amazing, right? You've got every, life is just so good. Or you may be at the other end and you are just in utter and complete despair and you do not know how tomorrow is going to happen, let alone Friday. Either way, you need to know that you are loved and you are loved because of this. This is how you know. Not that life is good or that life is bad, but that Jesus died on the cross for you. That you might be cleansed of impurity, that you might be cleansed of sin. This is the gospel we have to preach to ourselves every day, every hour. Whatever it is that besets you, whether you're discontent or you're fighting or you're unhappy or you're too happy, whatever it is, preach this gospel to yourself. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. This is the gospel we must preach to ourselves. The story is told uh, of, of a miner. Not a, not a miner as in little person, but a miner as in you know pickaxes and shovels and caves and that kind of a miner. Who, uh, who was a believer, he was a you know, solid Christian, but he was injured at a very young age. And uh, he became an invalid. And over the years past, he would watch through the window, it was near his bed, his little one-room hut, he would look through the window as life passed by. He watched his fellow workers as they married and raised families and had grandchildren. He watched the company that he had previously worked for as they thrived without attempting to make adequate provision for him. He watched as his body withered, as his house crumbled, as any hope that he'd ever had for better things died. Now one day when the bedridden miner was quite old now, a young man came into his little hut and sat down across from him. And he said, I hear that you believe in God. I hear that you claim that God loves you. How can you believe such things after all that has happened to you? And the old man hesitated and then he smiled. And he said, yeah, yep, there are days of doubt. There are days when Satan comes in and he sits right there where you're sitting. And he points out my window to the men that I once worked with, those whose bodies are still strong. And Satan asks me, does Jesus love you? And he makes me look at my tattered room. And he points out the glorious homes of my friends. And he asks again, does Jesus love you? Finally, he points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, somebody who has everything I do not. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he leans over and he whispers, does Jesus really love you? 
Now, the young man was a bit startled by the candour of the old miner's reply. And he said, well, what, what do you say when Satan speaks to you like that? And the man said, I take him by the hand and I lead him to a hill far away called Calvary. And there I point to nail-pierced hands, to a thorn-torn brow, to a spear-pierced side, and then I say to him, doesn't Jesus love me? Let's pray.